Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, a group of young French filmmakers decided to mess things up. They insisted on more artistic control and less meddling by the studios. This freeform attitude, they said, was necessary to advance the art of film. Well, it worked. Lots of praise, lots of success. And in the process, their movement acquired a name, Nouvelle Vague. Film historians now say that this style and attitude was one of the most important developments in the history of motion pictures. Okay, let's now skip ahead to 1978. Punk rock was dying. It had burned itself out after just a couple of years. But its legacy was still valid. That a free-form attitude towards music was the only way to advance the art of rock and roll. It was Nouvelle Vague all over again. But only this time, they used the English translation. They called it New Wave. This is Chapter 6 of the Complete History of Alt-Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 6 in a broad history of modern rock. We're looking at the roots and the evolution of what became known as alternative music. We'll get to where that phrase came from a little bit later on, but first, we need to finish up this business of new wave. 1978 is a critical year in the history of rock and roll. This is where its evolution took a crazy series of leaps, because up until then, it was fairly easy to categorize modern popular music. You had pop, you had rock, there was country, and R&B, your four basic food groups. But by 1978, each of these basic categories had begun to unravel and get complicated. They began to separate, segment, and stratify into many different and distinct subgenres. For example, rock had cleaved into punk and metal and prog rock and soft rock and folk rock and a dozen other microflavors. Country was separating into at least two streams, the old school purists and those who wanted to modernize things just a bit. And from R&B, we got funk, and the very beginnings of what we'd later call rap and hip-hop. But R&B begat another offspring, something that was so polarizing and so hated by so many people that it forced music fans further and further away from the middle and more into the new spaces on the expanding fringes of popular music. That repulsive force, that dark matter, was known as disco. I heard somebody say... Disco and 
Now today, disco is merely cheesy music from the past, but if you were alive in 1978 and into rock, there was nothing, and I mean nothing, you hated more than disco. Clubs that used to have live music replaced their stages with DJ booths. Spinning records was far cheaper than paying musicians. The Bee Gees, the people behind the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, were poster demons as the people who destroyed music. Disco was evil, vacuous, boring, mindless, empty, and obnoxious, and needed to be despised, shunned, mocked, sabotaged, and ultimately destroyed. At the same time disco was forcing people to take sides, some young musicians began disassociating themselves from punk. Yeah, it was good that it was now okay for anyone with something to say to say it, and yeah, it was good that a new generation had a musical voice and seemed connected to a worldwide movement. It's just that after a while, it all seems so limiting. I mean, how long could you go on being angry and thrashing three chords really fast? I mean, punk was so 1976. The result was the whole new wave thing. But the sound and the attitude actually came before the name. And I have to explain this. The groups making this music weren't exactly punk, but when you listen to their music, you could tell that punk had happened. For example, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, Ramones, definitely punk. So were all the other bands that thrashed enthusiastically and angrily on their guitars. But where did something like this fit? Now, listening to that song from Blondie, a band who, by 1978, was a staple at CBGB in New York. They were accepted by all the punks. But when you heard that, you knew two things. One, this wasn't punk. And number two, this music couldn't have been made unless punk had existed. The attitude was right. The approach was correct. But there was more... What? It was a new wave in rock. All right, so how did this music become known as new wave? The earliest references we can find to that phrase are in a British fanzine called Sniffin' Glue in 1976. The writers were trying to make the connection between the lofty, artsy ambitions of British punks and those renegade film French makers of the 50s and 60s that we talked about earlier. Later that year, late 76, a story in Melody Maker magazine quoted Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren, very artsy guy, and he was using the term and applying it to bands that were related to punk, part of the same scene as punk, but not necessarily sounding that punk at all. And within a year, it seems to have caught on as the term describing the underground music that was coming up behind punk. And actually, for a while, in the UK anyway, punk and new wave were pretty much interchangeable. But then the Yanks would come along and mess that up. Across the Atlantic in New York City, a record label called Sire was having a marketing crisis. The head of the company, a guy named Seymour Stein, was a fan of what was happening at CBGB and had signed a, a bunch of these new bands, including the Ramones. The problem was, Sire couldn't get any of these acts on the radio. Mainstream radio stations wouldn't touch punk rock. Too dangerous, too weird, too violent, too polarizing, too class conscious, too political. Swear this is true. Back then, rock radio stations wouldn't play a Ramones record any more than they would play a Bee Gees record. 
That's how the American industry felt about punk rock. It was a fad and it needed to be ignored so it would just go away. And so it came to pass that at a marketing meeting at Sire Records, someone suggested that they use the term new wave in place of punk to describe their new signings. And it worked just like that. The stigmas of punk and the suspicions attached to that scene were wiped away. So new wave it was then. The Talking Heads, one of the first bands to be branded as New Wave by their label, Sire Records. But just like we saw with punk, there was some confusion at first at what was meant by New Wave. Okay, the Talking Heads and Blondie and Elvis Costello were New Wave, and so was this new band from Florida called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's actually fairly understandable because... Like the Talking Heads and Blondie and Elvis Costello, Tom Petty specialized in short, sharp, choppy songs with lots of rhythm guitar and a vaguely anti-corporate stance. But eventually things resolved themselves. New Wave came to describe a branch of new rock music that was played with the same attitude, aggression, energy, tension, and uh, twitchiness as punk, but with more emphasis on experimentation and electronics and... uh, well, artsiness. People described New Wave as like punk, only intelligent. Still, there was a lot of wiggle room there. Nice definition, and that was good. And that wiggle room was necessary because what came next was really, really cool. Stepping back just a little, we can see that the New Wave era became mainly a North American phenomenon that stretched from 1978 through to about 1984. And it can be divided into two periods. The first featured literally hundreds of guitar-driven pop bands, many of whom were inspired by British and American rock of the 60s and freed from conventional thinking by what they had learned from punk. And as new bands started to appear, it turned out that a lot of them weren't necessarily from New York or London or other centers like Toronto or L.A. or Cleveland that had embraced punk. These new bands were coming from everywhere. And this is where we first meet the Pretenders. The Pretenders were an important bridge between punk and new wave. Singer Chrissy Hind was from Akron, Ohio, of all places, but she had escaped to London, and she had impeccable punk rock credentials. Along with working in Malcolm McLaren's clothing shop in the earliest days of the Sex Pistols, she also wrote about punk in one of the British music magazines. She also played guitar in several short-lived British punk bands, one of which later revolved into The Clash. And then there was also the time that she nearly married Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols just so she could stay in the UK. She needed the British equivalent of a green card. So, yes, Chrissy had punk DNA. But she also appreciated the power and the value of a good pop song. Add in the fact that the Pretenders were three-quarters English also gave them a somewhat exotic touch. So it's no wonder that the Pretenders were successfully marketed by Sire, of course, under the New Wave banner. Another group that was different enough to be considered New Wave was the police. They were led by an ex-school teacher who insisted on wearing a striped shirt that made him look like a big bumblebee, which is why everybody called him Sting. The police had this 
reggae-tinged sound. Again, it wasn't punk rock, but you had to kind of admit that it was kind of punky. Oh, quick aside here. Their name, the police, was a nod to the fact that drummer Stuart Copeland's father was a former CIA agent. He was a senior black ops guy who was involved in sponsoring a coup in Syria back in the 40s. Another sidebar. The police had this consumer-friendly image, very important to New Wave, and this image came about quite by accident. Early in their career, the band was asked to appear in a commercial for Wrigley's Chewing Gum, and one of the things that they were asked to do for this TV commercial was bleach their hair blonde. That look became permanent, a distinctive visual hook to go along with the band's unique sound. And after a slow start that saw the group touring North America in a rented station wagon, the police began to infiltrate rock radio with songs like this. As the ideas and sounds of New Wave began to spread, new vocal styles began to develop. Singers sounded, uh, well, kind of geeky, weren't ashamed of it, because they didn't care. Here was music that was catchy and fun and somehow more real than what the mainstream was offering at the time. And it gave you license to be silly and goofy, in a fashionable and artsy way, of course. This is where we find the B-52s probably America's quintessential new wave band. They were born over cocktails at a Chinese restaurant near the campus of the University of Georgia in Athens. They were hardly interested in taking rock too seriously. They had their bouffant hairdos and their 50s clothing, and they actually worked hard at being silly. And for that surreal touch, the B-52s rehearsed in the bloodletting room of an abandoned mortuary. At first, they were dismissed as some kind of weird novelty band. But for those who chose to listen closely, it was obvious that there was some kind of quirky innovation at work here. People like a young Kurt Cobain, who discovered New Wave when he saw the B-52s appear on Saturday Night Live in early 1980, changed his life. And it began with 2,000 independently produced 7-inch singles of this song. The goofball stuff of the B-52s and the power pop of bands like The Pretenders weren't the only things coming out of New Wave. Freed from the rigid dogma of punk and anxious to rebel against the hideousness of disco, the subgenres just kept on coming. Now, remember how I said that New Wave was really a North American thing? That, however, did not mean that the principles that gave birth to it weren't at work elsewhere. By the late 1970s, a new musical device called the keyboard synthesizer had become cheap enough and portable enough to be useful to the average musician. What used to cost tens of thousands, and in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars, was now in reach of some regular people. And to follow this thread, we need to start in Germany. That's next. This is Chapter 6 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. And before we go any further, we have to consider the state of mind of the German people following World War II. I know that sounds a bit weird, but just follow me. Growing up in a country that had lost two horrible conflicts wasn't easy. Young Germans had a pretty confused sense of identity. Hold on to that thought. After the war, Germany went through a period of denazification. After years of being ordered to sing the glories of the Reich, musicians had to remember what it was like to be able to explore any form of music they wanted. 
No politics was necessary. Some really went for it, going deeply into modernism and the avant-garde. And by the 1950s, this had resulted in the creation of an experimental electronic music scene centered around the universities and institutes that could afford such exotic and expensive gear. By 1968, some young enlightened musicians, those who were lost when it came to their identity as Germans, were involved in fusing these experimental electronic traditions with the psychedelic stuff of the day. Their goal came to be the creation of a new form of music that wasn't beholden to what was happening in America or the UK. To some, the only solution was to abandon the traditional instrumentation of rock and roll entirely. They had to embrace the modern electronic music of the fatherland. And this is where we encounter Kraftwerk. Fascinated by the cold, otherworldly sounds of the synthesizer, Kraftwerk began experimenting with the new machines. They found that these devices could make sounds that no human being had ever heard before. Instead of nice, smooth, rounded waveforms, these things could generate square waves, totally artificial sounds, and very cool ones. Now, I need to give you an example so you know what I mean. The first known use of a synthesizer on a rock record was in 1967 on an album called Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and John Limited by The Monkees. It's a song called Star Collector. And when the synth comes in, notice how razor sharp it sounds. Those notes are represented by square sine waves. Now, there was a brief synthesizer craze in the late 60s and early 70s with a bunch of acts scoring novelty hits, and among them was Kraftwerk, with a song called Autobahn in 1974. But to them, this was hardly a novelty thing. Electronic music was serious business. It required study and engineering and the building of new machines. Other songs and albums followed, and in 1977, they released an album entitled Trans-Europe Express. In the 30-plus years since it came out, this record has influenced everything from dance music to industrial noise to rap and hip-hop. Massively influential stuff from Kraftwerk. These sounds were so weird, so alien, that other people just had to try making them on their own. After the all-too-real intensity of punk rock, the brutal recession of the late 70s and early 80s, and the escalating Cold War between America and the USSR, the idea of cold, paranoid, hollow, dehumanized music was actually pretty appealing for some people. And what could be more punk, more radical, than turning the creation of music over to robots and machines? This sound spawned a look. No scruffy punks here. Kraftwerk wore sharp suits and ties and had perfectly groomed hair. Meanwhile, Gary Newman looked sharp too, but also a lot like some kind of cold, detached alien. Maybe it was Ziggy Stardust's love child. Oh, and speaking of Ziggy Stardust... Even David Bowie was getting into electronics-driven music. 
After moving to Berlin to kill off his addictions to alcohol, cocaine, and heroin, he created three Kraftwerk-inspired albums with producer Brian Eno that showed that maybe electronics were the way forward. Bowie with the title track of his Heroes album. Actually, one of three versions. He did it in English and French and German. As the 1980s beckoned, it seemed that everybody wanted to ditch their guitars and get into the 21st century a little bit early by buying cheapo synthesizers and making the music of the future. Keyboards and electronics, not guitars, became the focus of this sound. But not so fast. There were those who still believed that the guitar had its place. It was just a different place. For our next chapter of the complete history of alt-rock, we're going to wrap up the 70s and start to slide into the 1980s. While New Wave was happening in North America, a similar thing, with a different name, was going on in Britain. And no one knew what to call it at first. New Wave had been appropriated by the Yankees, so that wouldn't do. Avant-garde? Okay, but that was pretty generic. Post-modernism? That was just pretentious. Post-rock? What did that even mean? And just to make things even more confusing, the subgenres kept coming. There was technopop and goth and ska. And what the hell's going on with a clash? This is where we're headed in Chapter 7 with the complete history of alt-rock. There's more music history at ongoinghistory.com. And if you're into what's now and what's next, surf to my other thing, exploremusic.com. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.